I invite you to turn in your bulletin over to page three. <laughs> You'll see there printed out our scripture text for this morning from the book of Ephesians. You'll also see the outline for our message, some, some additional scriptures that we'll refer to, not printed out as well. It's been several weeks since we've been work, worked on our study in the book of Ephesians, so perhaps a, a good review for, for us regulars and, and, a, and a recap for those who might be visiting with us this morning. The book of Ephesians, Paul the Apostle writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Ephesus and through the Spirit to us today. Uh, his, his letter basically can be divided into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 to 3, focuses in on what God has done for us in Christ. That he's given us every spiritual blessing, even though we uh, don't deserve it. That we're, we're sinners who are far off. God came in Jesus to take those who are far off and bring them near. So a salvation that's all by grace, through faith, not anything that we do to earn or deserve it. Uh, chapters 1 to 3, what God has done for us. Then chapters 4 to 6 is about the, the Christian life, how the, the good news of what God has done for us, undeserved uh, and free, then flows into how we live as children of God. And we've seen in the past uh, weeks that God gets uh, it's pretty specific. Uh, the general theme, walk as children of the light, uh, put off ways of unrighteousness and put on ways of righteousness. But then he does get pretty specific. And we've kind of slowed down to take a week at a time some, some of the particular topics that Paul has gotten into. So we did a week on anger and another week on stealing and another word on, week on forgiveness, another on, on our speech. And we come now into chapter 5 where Paul addresses the subject of, of sexual immorality uh, and sexual ethics. And so we'll take a week there as well. So we'll read uh, chapter 5 verses 1 through 7 and also a couple verses from later in the chapter. So uh, read God's, uh, pay attention to God's word with me as I, as I read it to you. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity, or covetousness, must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. And then down at verse 31, Paul continues, speaking about marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's pray again. Father, this is, is your word, your care for your people, your truth to your people. And so we pray that as we, as we study 
that you would give great wisdom for us to understand, both wisdom in the one who speaks and wisdom in those who listen, that we might see the glorious things that you have done and the glorious life that you call us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What is the story that we tell? What's the narrative that we speak out to ourselves, to the world around us? What's the story that we tell? About the Christian life in general? But this week specifically, thinking about the sexual ethics. What's, what's the story that we tell? Uh, in this particular age, in this particular season, the world around us is telling a very particular story. A very well-defined, uh, a very particular story that, if we're honest with ourselves, taken by itself, it's a very compelling story. Uh, this story builds in and gathers together notions that, that, that are wonderful. Um, notions of freedom. Uh, notions of love. Uh, here's how, here's how the story goes. Something like this. You and I were, were created to be free. Uh, free to, free to live. Uh, free to, to follow the longings of our hearts to, to be who we are. Uh, free to love and be loved without confinement or restriction or, or regulation. Uh, we're created to love and to be free. That's the story that, generally speaking, a lot of the world around us is, is telling. And if you just think of it by itself, there is something compelling about it. So, what's the story that the Bible tells? What's the story that we, as God's people, tell? Is uh, our narrative simply, well, God says, no. No, no, don't do that. Nope, don't do that either. Nope, 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 no, 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 no. Is that the story that we tell? If that's it, then it's not very compelling. Uh, it's not particularly helpful in, in dealing with temptation. Uh, and it's not even true, according to God's word, or fully accurate. God's word does tell a far, far richer story. And if we, if we can see it, we'll realize with eyes of faith through the spirit, it's actually a much, much better story. Yes, it involves uh, some restriction, but as, as we'll see, all real glorious love has confinement to it. That's what, that's what makes it particular and, and glorious in love, but we'll get there. It's a better story. It's, it's the story, and the true story that, that the Scripture tells that God uh, builds into his world. It starts at creation and goes all the way into eternity. It's the story. It also happens to be a love story. Uh, a love story that's big and beautiful and that draws every single one of us into it. In fact, our, our very being is stitched into that love story. 
even in the most uh, intimate and, and particular ways, our, our, our sexuality is stitched into this bigger, greater love story. And you see, we won't really understand uh, how, to, how to understand God's ways on the, on the human relational level unless we get its connection to the bigger, better, more glorious story that God is telling. And that's exactly how Paul tells it, if we can see in Ephesians, right? So he starts off in our, the first part of our passage, uh, first part of chapter 5, and he does give some, some rules, some commands. He says no to certain things. No is part of it. But he doesn't get too much further in the chapter before he brings in something bigger, the bigger story, the love story. Did you catch it? Well, let's, let's, let's go with it our, ourselves. Uh, so we'll start there. It's a first section. Know God's love story. Know God's love story. So here's where Paul really brings it out explicitly. It's, it's verse 31 and 32 of chapter 5. Um, so earlier in the chapter, he's given certain instructions and warnings about sexual immorality. Uh, he gets to talking about marriage in verse 31. That pretty clear he still has, has sexuality in mind, right? Two shall become one flesh. Same subject, in part. And then he quickly goes into verse 32, right? <coughs> this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he takes what happens in this very intimate human relational level and says, no, what this is really, really about is something much, much bigger. And Paul got there by quoting from Genesis 2, right? That's the quote he uses in verse 31. So let's follow Paul back uh, to, to, to Genesis. Apparently, if we're going to really understand this greater story, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. So let's follow Paul all the way back to the beginning. Back to Genesis, right? God himself creates the world, and the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, um, humanity. You might remember that Genesis 1 and 2 uh, both speak about the creation of, uh, of humanity uh, from kind of two different angles, two different lenses. Uh, in chapter 1, you have a, a quote from it there. On the, the final day of creation, here is God, the pinnacle of his creation, and we read, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God creates humans, uh, specifically male and female, this, this design distinction and difference. And, but he says something really special about, uh, about these ones he creates. Uh, in Yes, their male and femaleness, that they're made in the image of God. So who they are is designed specifically to image or mirror or reflect who God is and what God does. So if you're to see something about humanity and how humanity was designed and meant to be, the connection we should always be thinking is this was done on purpose. This was done so that we here would reflect, mirror, image, something bigger, God. So we, we're already kind of set up, okay, I'm going to think imaging, mirroring. This is going to point me back to something bigger. Now we go into Genesis 2, which is where Paul quotes from. 
And again, it's the, the, uh, the zoomed-in version of the creation of mankind, right? God creates Adam first, and we get this shocking declaration that there's something about God's creation that is not good. Uh, verse 18, it's not good that the man should be alone. And so God uh, declares, I will make a helper fit for him. Uh, a helper corresponding to, that's the language. Uh, uh, or you could translate it this way, as one scholar puts it, a helper like opposite him. A helper like opposite him. So someone not identical to Adam, but just like him, though just corresponding in just the right way. Uh, as a, as a, another, another scholar put it, uh, like corresponding puzzle pieces that fit together. Um, and so there, that's exactly what, what God does. He creates the woman, and, and Adam immediately recognizes, ah, this is it. This is what I couldn't find elsewhere in all of creation. This is it. And then what, what, uh, what God does is zoom back and say, this is the paradigm for all of humanity in, in marriage. Right? It's the verse that Paul quotes from Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what happens there in the garden with Adam and Eve, uh, we zoom out and say, this is to be, now God says, the paradigm for all marriage and all sexuality, that you have a man and the corresponding, the one, the one like opposite him, that, that ha form this unique, restricted relationship together, and it's, it's there that they, they come together, and that's the design, and that's the plan. And we begin to think, how does that show us something about God? Because right? Genesis 1 set us up. If we see something on a human level, we, we're told man is made in the image of God, male and female, created to image God. So we're thinking, how does this uh, most interesting, unique, intimate aspects of of humanity, how does this mirror and image what God is doing in a much bigger story? And sure enough, that's exactly what the Bible tells us. In fact, it is the story of the Bible. Uh, from beginning to end, God, uh, in his great love and plan to gather a people to be his very own. And this is what Paul says immediately after he quotes that Genesis uh, 2 passage, immediately says, this mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. I'm talking about God and his love for his people. This particular restricted covenant bond uh, of, of man and wife, it pictures, it images something greater, God's love for his own people. And sure enough, throughout the scriptures, you, you see God's relationship to his people spoken of uh, in terms of marriage, uh, in terms of the relationship of husband and wife. And so I've given you a couple examples there in your, uh, in your bulletin. Isaiah 62, uh, God talking, about, talking to his people. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Or Hosea 2, uh, again, talking to his people. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. 
I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You get it? You see it? Here's this language that, that we're familiar with on a human level. Uh, right? Maybe you even hear the echoes of what we say in a marriage ceremony. Right? Uh, right? Forsaking all others, give yourself only unto him so long as you both shall live. And here's that same kind of idea. God even uses the word covenant. Right? This, this promise, this bond, uh, this oath that connects, that, that restricts this beautiful only unto you, as long as you both shall live. And God says, this is a reflection of what I'm doing with my people. That in faithfulness, I'm going to commit myself to my own, and they, this people is going to be mine. As a bride or bridegroom rejoices over her bride, so I will rejoice over you, God says to his, to his people. Now, much of the time in, in the Old Testament, where this this marriage language is used about God and his people, it's actually in the negative. The prophet's coming to, uh, to Old Testament Israel, God's people, and, and saying, you, the bride, have not been faithful. And you get these challenging, sometimes really graphic passages uh, about God's people's unfaithfulness. Uh, God uh, declaring that, that they haven't forsaken all others. Right? You remember, that's even written into, into the, the first commandment. You kind of almost get that language. You shall have no other gods before me. Kind of sounds like a wedding vow, doesn't it? Right? Forsaking all others. But God comes to his people and the prophets and says, yeah, you haven't done that. Uh, you've, you've run after other gods. You've committed adultery. You haven't uh, had no other gods before me. Uh, and so you get these, these passages where God challenges people, his people, for, uh, for spiritual adultery, uh, for not keeping themselves only unto the Lord. Of course, this is the part where we can bring ourselves into it. Uh, Israel is not unique. Uh, this is us. Uh, God, God calls us as a, as a people together, but as individuals, uh, to, to, for God to be our God and have no other gods before him, but we haven't done it. We've fallen short. We've, we've run after other gods, uh, other, uh, other sources of hope and life, and, and, and violated God's ways in doing it. And so we can say, yeah, that's me too, committing spiritual adultery. But here's the wonderful and really beautiful thing about God's love story, is that he commits himself to his bride even though she's unworthy. Even though she's not faithful, even though she's stained, he sets his love upon her anyway and promises he will never forsake her. You see it most powerfully, what Paul says, Christ and his church. There you see it's in Jesus Christ, who's described as the bridegroom. Jesus, of course, God the Son himself. So God comes, takes on humanity uh, to, to die for his bride. To lay down his life for her, Paul says, Ephesians 5. That he might cleanse her and, and wash her. God commits himself to saving, rescuing his people, even though they're not worthy of it. Uh, even though we're those who have not been faithful, God comes uh, not only to love us, but to pay the price for our unfaithfulness. 
There's Jesus at the cross, bearing the wrath of God for uh, for us, taking that that unfaithfulness and the, the, the wrath it deserves on his own shoulders. And he dies for his bride uh, and, and gathers his people to himself so that, uh, cleansed by his gospel, so that this people is the people that he can rejoice over. Right? That's why God does this. Right? Go back to the Isaiah passage. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so uh, the Lord your God shall rejoice over you. This is, this is why Christ came. For, for us. You can make it personal, believer. This is why Jesus came. So that he might rejoice over me. That's what God says to you. And the love story is not even done. And because it's not going to be uh, completed until the end of the age. And, and so I put, put that, that verse from Revelation there on your uh, on your on your page, it's, it's the return of Christ, the end of the age, and how is that described? It's the it's the the climactic end to the love story. Uh, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. This is how the Bible presents heaven. Uh, it's it's the the bridegroom, God Himself, rejoicing over His people, His bride. For all eternity. It's a wedding celebration. That's God's story. That he creates a people to be his very own. Uh, that he rescues and saves them. And he will, he will gather them and perfect them so that he can draw them to himself and rejoice over them for all eternity. That's the story of history. That is God's love story. And what we do in our relationships... Uh, what, what's stitched into us in our very being is image bearers, is to reflect, to mirror, uh, to, to shine forth and point to that greater love story. Which is where, then, God's, God's instructions about our own sexuality come in. And this gets to our second point. Uh, so we need, to, we need to know God's love story, and then secondly, we need to realize that God's commands match God's story. So we started by saying that, that the, the, the message of Scripture is so much more than just no, 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 no. Um, but as Ephesians 5 tells us, it does include specific instructions. And some of those instructions are no, not here, not that. But those, those no's, those specific instructions, are not arbitrary. Uh, nor are they God just saying, yeah, you know, kind of spoil their fun, make life difficult. No, they're very specific, right? Because we are image bearers. They're specifically designed so that we, in our very being, in this most intimate of ways, point and reflect God's greater love story. Uh, it's not just that, well, if you follow God's rules, you'll have a happier, healthier life. Um, generally, that's true follow God's rules, and, and it leads to a, a happier, healthier life. Though it's a fallen world, and not always. Uh, but that's not even the primary point and motivation. That, that's a, that's a, a blessed fringe benefit that often happens. Uh, but the real motivation and point of God's commands is to connect us to this greater love story. Okay, so let's try to see how this works. Uh, so Ephesians 3, we start to get, or excuse, excuse me, Ephesians 5, we start to get into some of the specifics so, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness 
must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Uh, so here he begins and he's focusing on uh, at least that first term, focusing on action. Um, and no, notice, notice he's quite serious about this, right? Not even being named among you. In other words, not even a hint of immorality among you. It's kind of a little different how we tend to talk about it. We tend to think, okay, tell me where the line is so I can get as close as possible uh, to, to, to the line. And here, here Paul's kind of giving a different picture. You know, not even a hint. Like, don't even get close. Um, but, 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 but what? What's the, what's the specifics? Not any hint of, first term, sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. That's where we get the term pornography from. Uh, but it's actually a pretty broad term in Greek. Uh, it it uh, sometimes translated fornication, but the idea is it refers to any kind of sexual activity outside the bonds of biblical covenant marriage. Any kind of sexual activity outside the bounds of biblical covenant marriage. And so we don't have to go through a little, a whole graphic list of what God says no to, because it's kind of simply defined as God says no to anything but this. Committed biblical relationship. The man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now, there's the, there's the picture of, of biblical marriage, and God says no to any expression, activity outside of that. So, of course, that, that rules out quite a bit, uh, quite a bit about what the world around us might talk about. Um, if we're honest with ourselves, it's, it's saying no to a lot of the things that we ourselves are tempted to. We can be honest with one another. This is hard. This is challenging. This is difficult. We're tempted in a whole variety of different ways. It doesn't mean we're, we're, we're not believers if we're, if we're tempted. No, no, no. This is difficult. Which maybe raises that question. It's like, well, why would God make the rules that difficult? Why would he make it that hard? Is it, Come on, God, can't you just give us a break here? You know, make it a little more flexible or relaxed. And, you know, why, why be so narrow? Again, what we need to do is to realize uh, that, the, that the rules are not arbitrary. God's ways are not random. They're specifically designed so humanity can mirror, can reflect, can image God. And God's, God's greater love story of his commitment to his people well, it's, it's specific, and it's, and it's restricted, and it's narrow. Uh, and if we, if we think about it, we really wouldn't want it any other way. Uh, let's, try to, let's try to work with that for a minute. Try to see how, how the specifics of the rules connect us to the greater love story and how, wow, yeah, we, we really wouldn't want it any other way from God. Okay, so if we're saying that this term, uh, don't have any hint of sexual immorality, among you, okay, so that's anything but uh, covenant marriage. So, of course, that would rule out premarital sex. Connect that to the greater love story and think about it. Wow, we wouldn't really want it any other way. Could you imagine how awful it would be if, if God, in his love for you, believer, came and said, you know what? I'm not quite sure about you just yet. 
I'm not quite sure if I'm ready to sign on the dotted line and commit myself to you. I'm kind of reserving the right to walk away, but I'm going to get close and kind of test the waters with you, but I might might decide against it. Aren't we glad that God doesn't do that? That when he sets his love upon you, upon us as his people, uh, he, he is completely committed uh, or, or think about within marriage, of course, within covenant marriage, the idea is that we are to be absolutely faithful to our spouse, right? So this no hint of immorality would be, include no hint of, of adultery. Again, there, aren't we glad as we think about the greater love story that this is, this is the restriction that God places on himself and calls us to, uh, that that you never have to worry, believer, that God's going to wake up one morning and say, yeah, just not feeling it today. You know, I, I told you yesterday that I loved you and was committed to you, but today you don't look so great. Um, and, and so, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go elsewhere. God will never, ever, ever say that. That he has bound himself, he has restricted himself. That, that's what love is. It has that restriction, that narrowness to it. And it's part of the glory of it. That God knows us. You think about this for a minute this afternoon. You can even connect it to that idea of of being naked and unashamed within marriage. That God knows you and loves you. That that's part of the... That he really does know the most intimate parts of who you are. And yet he's committed to you anyway. That's, that's the, the, the bond that is, that is uh, God's commitment to his bride. And what we do in, in, in our own human relationships is called to mirror that. And what, what that will have us doing is have us mirroring and imaging God in slightly different ways at different seasons of our life. As believers called to mirror and image God in slightly different ways, uh, sometimes very different ways, in different seasons of our lives. And so, uh, if you're in a season where God has you in in a marriage, you're called to reflect God's love story uh, by enjoying the good gift of marital intimacy. That's part of how you image and and, and, and point to God within marriage. Um, but not every marriage is that joyful. And so if you're in a marriage that's not perfect, then part of what you're called to do within that marriage is mirror and image God uh, in the midst of radical faithfulness, even to someone who's not perfect, because that's God's commitment to us. Um, for, those, for those who are single, whether as, as young people single or, or single because of, of widowhood, there's a different season of mirroring and reflecting God. Uh, there's a season of mirroring God in the midst of longings that are unfulfilled. And there, uh, in, in that season, it's this battle for purity and, and chastity uh, by, by committing those unfulfilled longings to the Lord and having those as something that connect you to, to God and to a relationship that will fulfill, that will satisfy, partially here and completely uh, in eternity. So it, it's, it's going to look a little different for, for different believers in different circumstances. 
but all of it has this similar theme. It has its meaning, and it has its ultimate glory in reflecting and mirroring God. And we can expect it'll be a battle. It'll be a fight. It'll be a struggle. Uh, it, this, is, this is not easy, and we should admit it to one another, which is why we can talk about it, why we can rely upon one another and, and ask one another for prayer in the appropriate relationships. Uh, uh, and even that itself connects us to the greater love story, because our ultimate hope in our relationship with God is not that we're perfect, uh, but that he, he has a hold of us. Uh, and that he forgives us and picks us up and gives us new strength uh, to, to follow him. And so it is within our, our, our human battles for sexual purity. Our hope is not that we get it perfect, but we cling to the strength that's in Christ. And finding forgiveness there uh, and finding new strength to walk in his ways. Uh, the one thing that we must not do is refuse to fight the one thing that we must not do is abandon ourselves to immorality. Did, did you catch the, the strong warnings of verses 5 and verse 6? Uh, they're, they're pretty sobering warnings that God gives. Um, now, these are not warnings to strugglers. They're not warnings to, to believers who, who struggle with lust or struggle to follow God's ways. They're, they're fighting and they're, they're asking for forgiveness when they fall and clinging to new strength from God. That's honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, that's all of us. It's not talking to strugglers clinging to Jesus. It's talking to those who have abandoned the fight altogether and abandoned themselves altogether uh, to run away from God and his story. Because that is, uh, that is part of it. When you, when you reject God's ways and just completely, uh, completely abandon the battle, you're not, just, you're not just messing up one area of life. You're really rejecting God and his whole story for the world. Uh, which is why, like, and that's really what all sin is, in, in hardened unbelief, which is why we're, we take this warning seriously. Verse 6, where Paul says, No inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. Verse 5, verse 6, uh, speaking of the, the wrath of God, this, this is serious business. And, and God wants to, to warn, uh, like other areas of life, we need a Savior. And, and, so, and so the call really is, in this area of life, like all others, uh, realize that we're sinners and realize there is a Savior. And we run to him and call upon him. Uh, the, the, the thing that we must not do is reject uh, this, this offer of forgiveness, reject this Savior, uh, and, and reject his, his ways. So, know God's love story, realize that God's commands match God's love story, and then very, very, very quickly, battle with story weapons. So we said it's a battle, we can expect that, but we fight the battle with, with story weapons. And Paul actually gives us two right in the midst of the passage uh, that, that weighs weapons with which we fight. Just real quick, preach your identity, practice, practice thanksgiving. Uh, did you notice how Paul encourages the Ephesians in the midst of encouraging them to holiness in this area? He, he reminds them of their identity. Right? He calls them, verse 1, beloved children. Verse 3, saints, holy ones. Those set apart for God. Uh, that's, that's not arbitrary. 
he's reminding them of who they are. Which he said, chapters 1 to 3, that was all a free gift. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. Free gift. And he's saying, believer, listen, remember who you are. You're a beloved child of God. God has set his love on you from all eternity. Believer, remember who you are. You are a saint. You are a holy one. You're one who is set apart for God. And and we preach that, that message to ourselves. Preach that identity. Here's why I can say no to that to, to, to that which is impure and, and, and destructive and leads me away from God's love story. I can say no to it because I can say to myself, remember who you are. You're, you're God's beloved. You're, you're, you're a holy one set apart for him. I'm not going to mess with that. We can tell ourselves. So preach your identity to yourself again and again and again every day, even every hour. Preach your identity. Practice thanksgiving. Do you notice how he, he does that in verse 5? Uh, this is Paul in his, in his repeated pattern of put off and put on. You, you, you get rid of some stuff, but you always replace it with something. And so verse 5 is all about uh, our speech. Uh, don't even uh, be careful not even to engage in immorality in your speech. Right? No, no crude, coarse joking about this holy gift. Uh, that God gives. So he says, no to that speech. So what speech should we put on? He says, thanksgiving. Can you see the power there? Well, you can see it in reverse. Uh, there, there, is, there is nothing that will fuel temptation and, and sin more, especially the sin of lust and immorality. Nothing that will fuel it more than dissatisfaction. Then you looking consistently at the world around you and, and, and highlighting and focusing in on those things you don't have. Uh, those things you haven't been given. Those things that somebody else has and you don't and they have it. If you just focus narrowly, I want that, I don't have it, I don't have it, I don't have it, that will just, that dissatisfaction will fuel the temptation. Um, so God says, fight back with giving thanks. It's not a declaration that there's not hard things in your life. God acknowledges that. But it's, also, but it's acknowledging that God has also given good gifts. And if you look for them, you'll see them. Uh, individual blessings and relationships that you do have. And of course, the biggest thing you give thanks for is this greater love story. That regardless of what on a human level uh, that you might have or not have, here is, this, here is this greater love story that God says will satisfy. That regardless of what the, uh, the, the details and the struggle is here on earth, there is not a single believer who will get to heaven and say, yeah, this didn't really satisfy. No, all of us. Because that's, that's God's whole plan. And that's, God is writing a better love story. Uh, it, it's a powerful one. Uh, our, our great struggle and our world's great struggle uh, is not that we... We, we desire too much. Uh, really, our, our great problem is that we are satisfied with too little. God didn't create us to find ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world. Uh, there can be hints of delight and pleasure, and those are real, but they're always meant uh, to point us to something better, to the source of real satisfaction. It's this greater story that God is writing. And he stitched it into the entire world. He stitched it into your very being. 
And what we are what we are called to do as believers is is be pointed to it. Sometimes it's pointed to it in moments of joy. Sometimes it's pointed, being pointed and reflecting it in moments of struggle and hardship. Uh, but we connect it, we, we reflect it, and realize here is where the world is going for me. Here is where God is going with his relationship with me. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would fill your people with a fresh sense of your love, your commitment, your delight uh, in your people. And Lord, you would you would fill us with your grace in all those different circumstances which you have us, and different battles that you have us fighting. We thank you that you are powerful and you are good. And we pray in Jesus' name.